Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries. I want to welcome you to our Saturday morning Torah study. This study this year, we're explaining is Torah is for all people. And so we're emphasizing as we go through the Torah portions this why it's applicable to you and why it's important to you. We are in the book of Exodus, well into the book. And in fact, if you would, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 27, and we're going to start at verse 28. In the last week's portion, we took up the offering of all the materials to be able to build the tabernacle. And now, for, through the rest of the book of Exodus, Moses is receiving instructions and giving instructions not only for the creation of all the, uh, the um, furniture that would go in the tabernacle, but the tabernacle itself, and all of the, what you shall say, the consumables and the ancillary elements that were necessary for the operation of the tabernacle. In particular, there were certain consumables, such as the oil for the lamps, the, the incense that was put on the altar, other basic things, plus all the things that the priests themselves needed, such as the priestly garments, especially for the high priest and his high priestly garments. And so we're now in that part of the instruction concerning the tabernacle where those things are being discussed and brought forward by Moses. So our passage begins again at verse 28 of chapter 27, and it says, um, excuse me, verse 20 of chapter 27, and it begins, And you shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. So one of the first things we have here is about the olive oil uh, lamp uh, that was used for the menorah. There were seven candelabrium, and the fuel for the lamp was oil. And the way they would do this, they would put the oil into the lamp, which was had a bowl for the oil, and then they would take and make wicks out of the linen fabric. In fact, what they used to use was the old priestly garments. They would be shredded, turned into wicks, and they would be put into the oil, soaked in the oil, and then a, a wick end would be up, and they would trim the lamps that way by getting the lamps to light. And the lamp itself had enough oil in it that it could burn for a day, uh, that lamp, when it was uh, started. So the issue is to bring the oil. Now, before we go any further, we need to kind of understand about this oil a little bit. Uh, it comes from olives. And in fact, um, olives, it's the first squeeze of the olives. When they bring the olives in and they're ready to put them into an olive press where they would crush them or, or one of those turnstiles where they would crush them and they would get the oil to come out of the olives, um, it was the first squeeze of the olive. Now, let's talk about squeezing the olive, and let's talk about a little bit about other things that come from that. As I said, the first squeeze of the olive, which is referred to as virgin oil, and you may have, when you've gone to the store, uh, picked out uh, a jar or a bottle of olive oil, and it'll say something like extra virgin, or it'll say something like cold pressed. Uh, that's the finest olive oil that you can get out of the olive. And always, everybody wants the very best oil. That's what God is calling for, for to trim his lamps with, fuel his lamps with. 
is this um, first squeeze uh, of the olive. Now, once those olives have been squeezed and you get the first squeeze out, that's not the end of the olives. They don't just throw them away. You can get additional squeezes out of it. In fact, and they will actually, in some cases, squeeze the olives five times. But most generally, it's four times. Um, the, the next squeeze that they will get out of it is usually for uh, cooking purposes. It's a cooking oil. It's a little heavier than the extra virgin, and they can cook with it. And there's variations of that. The final squeeze of the olive, they make soap from it. So the olive and, and, uh, is an incredible symbol of the work of the Messiah. Let me explain. The first oil is for anointing and for the light to be the fuel for the light in your life. Uh, the next squeeze is for you to have the proper food and nourishment that we get from the Lord. And finally, he makes the soap that cleans us up. So all of those are illustrations. And so it's no wonder that the Messiah means the anointed one, meaning the one who has the olive oil on him. And that's where anointing oil comes from, as well as the fuel for the lamps. It's the first squeeze of the olive uh, to be used for that, the extra, extra virgin olive. Maybe that'll give you a new appreciation for the olive oil you have in your house, you know, when you go and buy that bottle, cold-pressed, extra virgin olive oil uh, from it. It's very, very special oil. And there, of course, there are many uh, excellent nutrients associated with that oil, and it's best for our health, and it's used in a variety of ways. In this verse, telling the, the uh, sons of Israel, bring that oil, and we're going to use that as the oil in the temple. In verse 21, it says, In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from the evening to the morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations for the sons of Israel. And again, I want to, because our study here is about Taurus for every, uh, all of us, you'll notice it says, it shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations. There never was a plan on the part of God to have these instructions, these commandments go up to a certain point, and then when the Messiah shows up, well, then we don't do them anymore. That is not what that says. It's this is perpetual for all generations. And I'm here to say to you that the Torah belongs to all generations of all who believe in the God of Israel. And part of your belief in the God of Israel is to believe in his son who was sent by the father. That's part of your faith in the God of Israel. And so the commandments uh, are not... Uh, set aside just because God fulfills his promise to send his son to do the work of redemption. In fact, it further reinforces and confirms them even more. And by the way, that's exactly what the Messiah said with regard to his commandments. I don't even think that I came to abolish them. I've come to fill them up full of meaning, to fulfill them. That's what the word fulfill means there in Matthew 5, 17. The, uh, just this last week, um, 
a verse came to mind and in some conversations that I had uh, from Joshua 1.8, and it, which starts out with the words, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate in it day and night, so that you might make your way prosperous and have good success. And I remember as a young man when I committed that verse to memory and was encouraged by others to do so, everybody thought the phrase, the book of the law, was just referring to the Bible in general. Nobody ever taught me or told me, when it says the book of the law, it's talking about the Torah, specifically the Torah. This Torah, the commandments of the Lord, should not depart from your mouth. You should be constantly thinking about them and how to keep them. And as I've shared with you before, the word keep uh, has to do with this. In the Hebrew, is the same definition for keeping a garden. Now, if you're going to keep a garden, why you're going to plan where the garden's going to be. You're going to decide what seeds you're going to plant. You're going to cultivate the ground. You're going to plant the seeds. You're going to water it. You're going to nurture those young plants. You're going to protect them from the bugs and other creatures from it. And you're going to allow the plants to grow to maturity so that you can consume its fruit that comes from it. Though all of the tasks associated with keeping a garden are all of the tasks associated with keeping the commandments of the Lord. You have to plan. You have to learn the commandments. You have to plan to do them. Uh, and they're not spontaneously done. They're deliberately done. They're deliberately kept and so that you can enjoy the final fruit of the garden, which is good success um, in your lifetime from keeping the commandments and obeying the Lord. Now, a lot of people think that, well, if I just believe, I'll have good success. That's uh, faith does not produce the blessing, brethren. Faith is counter for righteousness that leads to salvation. Obedience is what produces the blessing. Keeping the commandments is what produces the blessing. This is why you see unbelievers in the world who have good success because they accidentally obeyed the Lord and they get the benefit of the blessing if they obey the Lord. And it's the reason why some Christians will stand up and say they believe in the Messiah, but they'll deny the commandments and all of a sudden they don't get the blessings. And they're trying to figure out, well, why? I guess I didn't have enough faith, I guess. That's the way they diagnose the problem, and that's the reason why we have unfulfilled blessings for many believers in the faith of the Messiah, because they will not learn these commandments. And they're not difficult to learn. They're simple. They're straightforward. They're wise. And the fact is that a lot of people are keeping them, but they don't acknowledge them that that's where they come from. So our portion continues on, uh, verse uh, chapter 28. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all of the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic, checkered work, a turban and sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. 
and you shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. They also shall make the ephod of gold of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen and the work of a skillful workman. And it shall have two shoulder pieces joined as two ends that it may be joined and skillfully woven band, which is on it, shall be like in its workmanship of the same material of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six names, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. And as a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, and you shall set them in filigree settings of gold, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, and on stones a memorial for the, stone, for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for as a memorial, and you shall set filigree settings of gold. Now let me go a little bit further uh, in, in explanation. That's quite wordy that I have given to you. What we're talking about is called the ephod and the breast piece. And the high priest would wear this, it was kind of square, and it would sit up on his upper chest covering his heart. And it had straps that came over and the onyx stones were up on the shoulders. There's a gold chain that would be fixed around to the back. And they're actually in this breastplate, there were uh, precious stones on the front, each one had engraved the names of the sons of Israel, not only up on the shoulders, but in the stones of the setting. And there was a pocket in this where he could reach down in, and there was a pocket behind the stones into it. And inside it carried other stones. I want to read that portion to you, uh, which explains what were the stones that were inside. And it, so shall we go over to verse 30 of this chapter? And you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, I need to give some additional explanation. And by the way, there is um, some who will argue different points of this, but I will give you the general sense of what we believe this was. Urim, the word actually means lights. There was a stone that would become illuminated when it was brought forth. The thumen, which is a plural, seems to indicate that it could give an answer of either the affirmative or the negative, a yes or a no. And essentially when they were used, if you were asking for God's judgment on a particular question, I'll explain that a little bit later, the high priest would pray and say, oh God, give us your answer to this issue. He would reach in and grab the Urim and Thummim and it would come forth in his hand for everyone to see. Now, if God was giving the answer, in other words, he was, I'm going to answer that question, the Urim would have become illuminated. It would light up so that you would see the stone has light to it. And the Thummim, whether it was indicating yes or no, would then be the answer. 
If the Urim did not illuminate, then God wasn't answering the question at that time. There was no answer. And so it would be non-answer for it. It throughout the history of Israel, the Urim and Thummim was used um, in key times. For example, King David um, had a question in a battle with the Philistines as to whether or not he should press the battle and pursue the escaping Philistines or whether she should stop the battle at that point and continue on. He went to the high priest and he said, I have a question for God. I need to know, should I pursue them or not? And the Urim and Thummim were brought forth by the high priest and the answer was given to pursue them. And so David went and secured a great victory uh, as a result of that. That's one example of how it was used. Another example that we're told is when the remnant of Judah, um, those that had been in Babylonian captivity, when they returned back to the land, they'd been gone some 70 years uh, from that time frame, and there was a lot of confusion about the genealogy, particularly of the priesthood. And there was an instruction, as the Torah said, that the priests are not to marry outside of the ranks of Israel. They are to marry only daughters of the sons of Israel. And while they were in Babylon, there were many people who intermarried with different peoples while they were in a foreign land. And so the priests came back and the instruction was given that the priests were to put away their foreign wives and to take only wives from the children of Israel. But there was a question about, well, who exactly is a priest? Because there was a lot of question with regard to that. And so the Urim and Thummim, each of these prospective priests were brought forward and they would be affirmed as a priest or not affirmed as a priest. If they were affirmed as a priest, then they took the steps to put away the foreign wives, send them back, and to take new wives for them to restore Israel after the Babylonian captivity. Those are the few examples, but we believe the Urim and Thummim was used regularly throughout the history of Israel. That was part of the work of the high priest. Um, and it could be an individual person who approaches and requests could be the king who comes and requests. It could be of national importance. Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, that's what they were given for. And as it said, it says they were for judgment. In other words, not, not, not for punishment judgment, but we're talking about for judgment to discern and to understand correctly what is it that the Lord would have them to do uh, with it. Can you stop and think about that for a moment? How powerful that would that be? If, if we had in our nation, we had a, a Urim and Thummim, and we had somebody that we could go to, we could take every national issue and go in and present it before God and say, God, do you approve of this or not? And can you imagine if we went in and we said, God, do you approve of abortion? And we got a stone that lit up and it said no. Wow, then it would become, a, 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 the issue wouldn't be abortion anymore. The issue would be, are you going to obey the Lord? And originally, this country was founded on those principles. Will we obey the Lord or not? And it was based on obedience to God. That's how this country was formed. Boy, have we gotten off track from that. 
And we and and Israel, this Urim and Thummim and the Ephod, one of the curses and the punishments that came upon Israel when God scattered us in the nations, he said part of the punishment was we would be in foreign lands without an ephod, without the Urim and Thummim, that we'd be on our own. We wouldn't have the counsel of God that is given directly to us by the high priest. We wouldn't have high priest. We wouldn't have the ephod. We wouldn't have the Urim and Thummim. We'd have no way. We're on our own. We didn't want to be under God's leadership. So guess what? Okay, you're not under my leadership. Now let's see how you do. Let's see what you do for yourself. And it's part of the punishment that we have seen in many generations since Israel has been scattered uh, to the nations. But here's the instructions specifically that has to do with how these things were originally created, how the tabernacle was created, how the priesthood was set up and established to be with it. The um, verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes, and mix with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and you shall make them of fine wheat flour. And you shall put them in one basket and present them to the basket along with the bull and the rams. Then you, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of him, wash them with water, and you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe and the ephod and the, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him skillfully, a woven band of the ephod, and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and then you shall with, take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and upon him, and anoint him. And it shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, and Aaron and his sons and his um, bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood as a perpetual statute, so you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now the attire, had you seen the priests in that day, in the case of Aaron, high priest, he had this multicolored uh, outfit. It was a very uh, complex, very decorative um, tunic and ephod that was on there and, and his, uh, his uh, miter, the hat that he had, and there was a plate of gold, you know, up that was the crown that would say, holy to the Lord. And it was a very attractive, majestic looking garment. I mean, there was no doubt you're looking at the high priest. All the other priests would have essentially a white tunic with a red sash around their waist and a white miter for it. And the priests always served with their heads covered when they served in the temple. This kippah that Jewish men wear is part of the symbolization of how the high priests and the priests were dressed. If it was appropriate for them to issue up prayers for the people and they were covered in their heads, showing humility unto God, then shouldn't we do the same thing when we pray to God? So they have made this kippah, or they have made this, um, it's sometimes called a yarmulke, which is a Yiddish version of yarmulke, which means fear of the king. That means you're in submission to the king of Israel. 
And kippah is from kippur, which means atonement. And the atonement that is of a kippah means I am reconciled to God. Uh, God and I don't have any more issues between us. I have agreed to what God has said. And so that's a public testimony of such. And in the case of these were the garments that were designated for the priest to minister. And the kippah today is simply an expression of the example of the priesthood, how they were instructed to attire themselves. Jewish men will attire themselves with a kippah with these particular meanings, uh, you know, for it. Um, the, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, adapted it from, from Judaism. And that's the reason why priests wear yarmulkes, you know, for them. And it's part of the continuation of it. Now, the Protestants don't wear kippahs, you know. Uh, and they've gotten away from the original meanings. And in fact, the explanation I just gave might be new information to a whole lot of Christians because they've never heard anybody actually teach it or explain it. And it's born out of these instructions here in the book of Exodus. Uh, it's born out of this understanding for it. Interestingly enough, um, Paul does talk about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about head coverings and gives some very specific instruction. However, that particular instruction is quite often misunderstood. It talks about, for example, that a woman's head is to be covered, but a man's head is to be uncovered. And in that case, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about the instructions of a yarmulke, a kippah, or a mitre. In fact, what it's talking about is length of hair and appearance as a man or a woman. It is improper for a man to grow his hair in such a way that he could be confused as to whether or not he is a woman or a man. It is also offensive for a woman not to have sufficient amount of hair in such a way so as to, to cloak the, whether she's a woman or a man. A man should look like a man, a woman should look like a woman. One of the greatest offenses that is understood from these commandments and what Paul was referring to Let's say you're walking down the street and you have a, another person in front of you and they have a short haircut and you think it's a man. And you walk up on the fellow and you reach out, you grab him by the arm and say, hey, how are you, you know, and it turns out it's a woman. The embarrassment that comes from that moment is considered to be highly offensive. Um, and the same is true if a man walks up on another man and he has long hair and he thinks it's a woman he's talking to. He, it's highly offensive. Highly offensive. To this day, it's still offensive. It will tweak your soul. The, today, we have a major social issue going on about transgenders. These are women who decide they want to be men and men who decide they want to be women. And all it does is cause embarrassment and concern. And this is not how you build homogeneous um, uh, community or whatsoever. Here in, in back many years ago, I remember when I worked for uh, near NOAA and so forth, they had a government employee. His name, I believe his name was Charles. Uh, 
And he went off and got surgery done, and he came back as Charlene. And they brought all the ladies in and tried to explain to the ladies that Charlene would now be using the ladies' room with them. And they brought some OU professor over to explain to the staff. Now, mind you, this is Norman, Oklahoma, the buckle of the Bible Belt. Okay? This didn't go over well. This was highly, highly offensive. And they weren't even necessarily following the Torah commandments. There's a part of their soul that knew right from wrong. And, and uh, I remember counseling with some of the people over the issue and, uh, as to how they should respond and so forth. And basically I told them, I said, just go back in and use the language that you're making a hostile work environment. And that will get their attention. That's another one of those human resources principles they have to honor. And so we're saying, I'm in a hostile work environment if that guy comes in the ladies' room with me. It's hostile. I won't go in that ladies' room. Now you've got to supply it. So they were talking about making new restrooms that said it on it instead of men or women. And it's, it's a nightmare, friends. It is a nightmare. By the way, that's one of the new changes that has come in the administration, flipping back and forth. You know, the Obama administration pushed this thing, and uh, Trump said no, and now Biden's going to come back and he's going to say that transgenders can use whatever restroom they want to use. So we're going to be back to that controversy um, again in our time. So don't tell me that the Torah isn't for all people. You and I are living with the consequences of people not following the Torah. And it affects us every day. And I know that uh, Christians are opposed to homosexuality, which I agree with uh, as a general rule. Uh, you do realize that those commandments come from the Torah. If, but because Christians have dismissed the Torah, they've found themselves compromised on the subject of homosexuality and transgenderism. They, they are compromised because they didn't follow the commandments. They didn't choose the commandments over their own opinions for it. And here are now the consequences of what happens when you don't follow what the Lord says. I want to take you down now to uh, chapter 29. And in the middle of all of this discussion, there's going to be one particular process that takes place in the tabernacle that was of a daily nature which sets the standard for every temple of God. In other words, no matter whether it be Jerusalem or whatever, this is foundational for the first practice uh, of the temple. And it's in, it begins here in verse 38. It says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb shall you offer in the morning, and the other you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth a hen of wine for a libation with one lamb. And the other lamb shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering as the morning, the same libation for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. And it says, It shall be a continual offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting, before the Lord, where I shall meet with you to speak with you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel. 
and it shall be consecrated to my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is a foundational task associated with the tabernacle and the temple service. The priests, each morning, are to take a yearling lamb with the, the oil, with the wine, with the, the um, fine flour, the, the bread, the libation offering, and they're to present it on the offering. This is the first offering of the day in a temple service. And they call it the morning offering because literally at the moment of dawn, uh, they offer this lamb up on the altar. And there's a series of very special things that take place in the tabernacle and the temple at that moment. They station a priest up on the ramparts of the temple who stares at Hebron. And Hebron is a mountainous area, Judean mountains, which is to the south of Jerusalem. And as the sun rises in the east, suddenly the light casts across and the Hebraic or the, the Judean mountains rise above the rest of Israel. And the sunlight first strikes the land of Israel at that point. The first daylight strikes that first. And at the moment that he sees the light on Hebron, the priest shouts out that it's the dawn of the day. And at that moment, waiting, were a series of priests, and they slash the throat of the morning lamb. They immediately capture its blood. They immediately prepare the sacrifice. They immediately take it up on the altar and present it to God as a whole burnt offering first thing in the morning. Now, once that has done, there is another priest who takes some of the incense and some of the coals from the fire, and he walks into the sanctuary of the temple, goes to the golden altar, puts the coals down, and then puts the incense on it so that there's a cloud of incense that comes up in the temple, the fragrance, sweet fragrance. And he turns around, he walks back to the porch where he sees the altar with the burnt offering on it, the priest standing by, and at that moment he speaks the priestly blessing upon the whole nation of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. And he uses God's ineffable name. He speaks God's name uh, directly. At the moment the people hear God's name being spoken, everybody drops to their face. And their response is, blessed be his name whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. When we say the Shema, uh, we, the second line of the Shema actually is what used to happen in the tabernacle and the temple. They used to be by any person that was in the temple and heard the name of God spoken, they would drop to their face and they would make that statement. Blessed be his name whose uh, glorious kingdom is forever and ever. And here in this language about this daily sacrifice, God himself is stating um, very emphatically, I will meet with the sons of Israel in this place with the ministering priests, and I will dwell within Israel, and I will be your God. The altar 
is the table of God. And these particular things that were put on the table of God, basically God is saying in the morning offering, he's saying, the first thing I want before I do business with any other, I want meat on my table. I want wine on my table. I want bread on my table. And I want oil on my table. I want the table set with these things so that when anybody comes in to do business with me for the remainder of that day, they can bring their gifts, which can be added to the table, but I already have set the table for my guests to come in before me. So the first thing that's put on there is, are those, those things for it. And the same thing happens at the end of the day. At the end of the day, about the time the temple is being closed, which, by the way, is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the biblical definition of the twilight. And at twilight, uh, 3 o'clock in the day, in the day, they stop the other sacrifices. They do the evening sacrifice. And that one lamb is put on as the last thing, along with those items. And at that point, then they have one priest who is now stationed in the temple that night for them, until the dawn of the day who specifically is to make sure that the altar is tended correctly, that the evening lamb is consumed by the pyre and the fire correctly. If you had a rainy night, why, you're going to have to have a priest up there tending that thing and making sure that pyre keeps going and make sure that the meat is positioned on the pyre correctly so that it's consumed, so that the next morning the evening offering has been completely consumed and that we're ready to do the morning offering the next day. Well, if you can imagine that this ceremony takes place at the first moment the dawn hit, hits Israel, the preparation for all of that is in the dark, isn't it? The priests actually have to come to the temple in the dark. And in fact, that's where we have this other expression for this sacrifice, where we have the high priest would uh, come into the temple in the very early part of the morning while it's still dark. And his task was to come in like a thief in the night. He would come in stealthily and very quietly. He wouldn't announce that he's coming in. He would come in quietly. And part of the reason was to follow up and to see if the priest that had been stationed there for the night, if he was still awake attending his duties. If he was, everything was great. They would then prepare the altar with a new pyre ready for the new morning sacrifice. The ashes would be removed. Everything would be prepped. However, if the priest had fallen asleep and the fire had gone out, not been tended properly, evening sacrifice had not been done, the high priest was the one who was authorized to restart it and make sure the evening sacrifice is completely consumed um, you know, prior to a morning offering is presented. Can you imagine the delay the next morning? I can't put the morning sacrifice up because we're still trying to take care of the evening offering because the priest had fallen asleep. By the way, the prescribed uh, way of waking the, the sleeping priest was that the high priest was to take some of the coals from the fire, from the altar, in his fire pan, go look for the sleeping priest. When he found him, he would take some of the coals and he would put it to the bottom of his garments, his priestly garments. Now, I want to remind you that these garments, 
these linen garments. The old ones were shredded up and they became the wicks and the lamps uh, in the temple. These were not, as I say, OSHA-approved fire-retardant garments. These things burned. And so they would light the bottom of the garment on fire, and the priest would suddenly wake up with his clothes on fire. That's a heck of a way to wake up. So what would happen is the priest would have no choice but to simply tear all of his clothes off, and now he gets to go home naked because he wasn't attentive to his duties. And there are five times in the New Testament where we hear this language about the thief in the night, the Messiah comes as the thief in the night, and it's part of this picture of the high priest coming into the temple to get ready for the um, morning sacrifice and uh, trying to prepare the altar for that. And if the priest has fallen asleep, was not attentive, then uh, the high priest would come in and exercise judgment against that sleeping priest. And so five times there's a mention of the Messiah coming where he says, when I do come, for some people, you're going to be like the sleeping priest, and I'm going to be like the high priest that comes in to light your garments on fire. Blessed is he, the Messiah said, blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his garments. That's the exhortation that we find in the New Testament. It's born out of this daily sacrifice, this morning and evening lamb ceremony right here in this Torah portion. The, I want to mention just one additional thing. As you know, we teach in the New Covenant that when the Messiah came, that he rebuilt the house of God. He rebuilt the temple, but he rebuilt it inside of us. It's the same pattern as the one in heaven, and there's a, a temple been built in us. Part of the reason why we study the tabernacle and understand the temple service is because it explains how God dwells inside of us. And what are the processes of how we approach God when it comes to prayer or petitioning the Lord or how we worship the Lord? It, it, all of the things that we see associated with the tabernacle, the example there, those are the same things that happen with us. That's the same things that's inside of us. When the Messiah talks about uh, this um, daily sacrifice. He's talking about our daily walk before the Lord. In effect, in this temple, there's a high priest, that's Yeshua the Messiah, and I'm the priest of this temple. I've been charged as being a priest. It is my job to make sure the temple is proper, the proper things are presented on the altar before God, and to make sure that the evening sacrifice is consumed correctly. If I fall asleep on the job and I don't, I'm not attentive of my faith, then we're just letting the evening sacrifice do its thing, regardless of whether it's ready or not. When the Messiah returns, his exhortation about him coming as a high priest, he says, I'm coming back to this temple. I'm coming back to where this is in every individual. Now, if you're asleep and you're not tending the altar correctly... Well, guess what I, as the high priest, am going to do? I'm going to relight your altar. I'm going to light you up. And then I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to light you up personally. I'm going to light up your garments. 
And you're going to be embarrassed and potentially wounded by this process. So he warns us and encourages us, don't make that mistake. Be attentive to my return and be prepared for my return. And of course, there are many other teachings that the Messiah gave us about the master who goes on a far journey and the faithful servant who remains in the house and tends to the master's house. And when the master comes back, he's rewarded well. But then there's other servants in there goofing off saying, oh, the master's on a long journey. We don't have to worry about him coming back. And uh, they get themselves in all kinds of trouble uh, when he comes back. Um, let me just comment on that for a moment. In the course of my lifetime, one of the topics um, in studying the Scripture that we is part of the Scripture, in fact, it's one-fifth of all Scripture, is eschatology. It's about the prophecies associated with the end times, the last generation, and the coming of the Lord. In the course of my lifetime, I've been paying attention to those prophecies, warning others about them, trying to be a watchman on the wall, pay attention to what's going on in the world, see how it lines up with the prophecies. Guys, keep watching, be faithful to the Lord. Don't, don't ignore your faith. Don't, you know, keep walking with the Lord, pay attention. Stay awake, essentially, is what I exhort people to do. And at various times, uh, there's, been, there's ebb and flow. There's moments when everybody gets excited about the subject and then it, then it ebbs and, and then people are not so excited about it. And then it, it gets excited again and then it ebbs and so forth. Especially as we see current events, especially as we see things harmonizing with the end time prophecies which raises our awareness and sensitivity to the subject. Well, there's a lot of people who don't like that. They don't like uh, things happening in the world and other Christians talking about, um, you know, the coming of the Lord. And in fact, I've shared with this audience many times before, there are certain eschatology books, such as the book of Revelation, there are some churches that absolutely refuse to have it taught. They won't allow anybody to teach it. They take an attitude, nobody knows, and so we're not going to waste any time on this. And they dismiss literally a fifth of the Bible, willfully and intentionally. And by the way, the, the Lord said the reason why this information was given to us is so that we might believe in Him. Because when that day comes, the challenges that will be in the Great Tribulation will challenge everyone's faith. In fact, the prophecy says that there's going to be a great falling away of the faith when the Great Tribulation comes. There's a lot of people who just won't have the strength of faith. They won't know their faith well enough. They have no spiritual strength to withstand the fear and the concern of the day. And they'll give up the faith. Whereas he's encouraging us to be aware of these prophecies, pay attention to them, so that we'll believe the Lord when things begin to happen. When the great tribulation comes, and we, the reality of it suddenly hits us. Well, let's say we're just a few days after the altar has been shut down, and, and all of it's clear as a bell. Those are the prophecies, and that's what happened, and so forth. There are some out of fear that will just completely flake out. They'll just give it up. They, they, they won't want to believe anything, and they'll dismiss everything. There's others, though, who've been paying attention who it will be the very confirmation that what the Lord has said. And they'll put their confidence in the Lord. 
there's one of these two results that come out of it, either fear or confidence in the Lord with regard to what he has said. The, um, the whole idea of many of these instructions is to build up our faith, to build up our strength to understand what the Lord is doing because you do know we serve an unseen God who has been around for a long time, who has the ability to tell us about the end while he's telling us the beginning, as he says of himself. Well, if you never pay attention to the beginning and what are the earlier instructions, how will you understand the stuff at the end? Basic logic. So you've got people who don't want to know about the Torah. You've got people that don't want to know about eschatology or the end times, the last things, and they dismiss all of it. And in our modern movement today, we have people, brethren amongst us, good brothers, who would rather not get interested or excited in the prophecies. Part of the reason is they won't take the time to study them and to find out what they say. And secondly, they look at people who are getting excited about the coming of the Lord, and they see them as, as weird. They see them as, well, you've lost your mind. You know, you're, you're eccentric in your faith. You're uh, compulsive, obsessive. You know, you've lo you know, you're crazy. And they, of course, they don't want to look crazy. Nobody wants to look crazy. But is it okay if you look crazy to the world if you believe? And oh, by the way, God says to us that if you believe in him, the world is going to think you're foolish. If you believe in him, they're going to think you're crazy. If you believe that he came, died, was resurrected, came out of the grave, and he's still alive, you're crazy. If you believe he's going to be coming back, and he's going to do these judgments on the earth, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on the earth, you're crazy. You're a nut. In fact, as our uh, Joe Biden is quoted many years ago as saying that people referring to, he's a good Catholic, you know, referring to the second coming, he said, it's all a bunch of malarkey. One of Joe Biden's famous words. When you have a leader of the nation referring to the teaching of the second coming as malarkey, you're going to knock a lot of fence riders right off the fence and onto the side of unbelief. Uh, if you have a pastor of a church who doesn't want to deal with the subject, doesn't want to take the time to study it, doesn't want to learn, well then he, what he's going to do is he's going to regard any person out there talking about the subject as they're all crazy and they're all false prophets. Didn't Yeshua say there would be many false prophets? Yes, he did. He did say there were many false prophets. What was he actually saying when he said that? He said that while the word is out there about me, about my coming, it's going to get very confusing for you because the devil's going to send many false prophets to confuse the whole thing. And literally, they're going to try to cover and hide what the truth is by giving you all this false, crazy information. And by the way, is there some false and crazy information out there on the Internet? You darn tootin' there. There are many people 
who speculate rather than repeat what the Lord has said. They try to give their own interpretation of world events. And as a result, they lose sight of what the Lord is really saying. The, um, again, going back to our portion, which is telling us about things having to do with the tabernacle, they're still with us. The principles are still with us. These original instructions are still with us. Let me prove my point. What is the prophesied first event of the Great Tribulation? It's called the Abomination of Desolation, the prophet Daniel. What exactly is the first part of the Abomination of Desolation? That there's an altar with priests that is operating in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And in particular, they're doing the daily sacrifice. And the prophecy says the Great Tribulation begins when these people come up and they block and they prohibit the daily sacrifice from being done. They stop the morning sacrifice or they stop the evening sacrifice, one of the two. They stop it. That's day one of the Great Tribulation, the prophets say. The average Christian, even those who believe in the rapture, have no idea that's the starting event of the Great Tribulation. And since they don't believe in altars and they don't believe in tabernacles and temples and that's not part of them, they have no sense of what is the significance of that and why did God use that as the sign of the start of the Great Tribulation? Because they don't understand that the altar is God's ownership symbol of the earth. It's His table. And when the devil stops the daily sacrifice, he's basically telling God, the earth is not yours in the fullness thereof. I, it don't, belongs to me. The devil wants to steal the earth and all the people in it. Wants to destroy it. Doesn't want God to have it. And so that will be the start of the final conflict between God and Hasatan with us in the middle of it. The more we know about the temple service and the daily sacrifice, the more we will understand the prophetic significance of the abomination of desolation prophecy. See, it turns out this Torah portion is for all of us, especially here at the end times. Shalom, everyone. I'll see you next Sabbath. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.